This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A judge's decision this summer not to send a former CU Boulder student to prison led to outrage and to a petition drive to oust the judge. The student, Austin Wilkerson, was convicted of sexual assault. The sentence has also led to a debate about the way Colorado sentences sex offenders. CPR's Andrea DeConcus joins me to explain. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks. First, remind us about this case. It happened in March of 2014. The victim was a freshman at CU Boulder at the time. She went to several parties on what's called the Hill near campus. She'd been drinking a lot, and a sophomore named Austin Wilkerson said he'd take care of her. Instead, he took her back to his house and sexually assaulted her. Wilkerson was convicted earlier this year of sexual assault on a helpless victim. It's a Class three felony, which comes with a possible sentence of four to 12 years in prison. But didn't he get prison time? No. In August, Boulder District Judge Patrick Butler sentenced Wilkerson to two years of a jail work release program and 20 years to life of probation. So no prison time. There are some who say that even so, will be monitored very closely and for a long time. But many were angered by what they considered a light sentence, uh, including the victim, Kendra Hewer. She's now a senior at CU Boulder. He was convicted of a Class 3 felony, which is, you know, on par with vehicular manslaughter. And he's out roaming the streets like free to rape again. Now, Hewer has only recently begun to talk publicly about her experience. She says she wants to help other victims by speaking up. And there's a petition drive to remove the judge? Yeah, the person who launched the drive, Rebecca Kales, lives in Denver. She, like others, compares this to the Stanford case. That's where student Brock Turner was sentenced to six months of jail time for raping an unconscious woman. He's actually already been released after three months. Kales says the case in Boulder hit close to home since she lives in Colorado and went to school here. She points to the perpetrator in the Boulder case and says he, Austin Wilkerson won. Having a judge put his rights and his sort of the weight of his future over hers just honestly it just made me really mad. <laughs> I, you know I don't I don't like activist judges and to me this just sets a dangerous precedent. So far, Kales has nearly 83,000 signatures. She says she never thought it would draw so much attention. And she says she's considering presenting the petition to the legislature. Um, But the legislature would have to vote to impeach the judge, which is unlikely. Um, Still, voters could choose not to retain him when he's up for a retention vote. Kales says she mainly launched the drive to get more people to pay attention to sexual assault. And we mentioned this case has spurred debate over Colorado sentencing law for sex offenders. Yeah, many say underlying the judge's decision was a law called the Lifetime Supervision Act. Mm -hmm. The law passed in 1998. It was designed to rehabilitate sex offenders, and it requires them to go through treatment in prison. If they aren't able to complete treatment for whatever reason, they can be held in prison indefinitely, even for life. And it's meant to keep dangerous sex offenders behind bars, um, but critics say there are a lot of unfair barriers to getting treatment 
treatment. And that includes long wait times to get into a program. Several judges have admitted they might choose to sentence an offender to probation instead of prison. And that's because they fear the offender could end up in prison for much longer than their actual sentence. Uh, Did the judge in the Boulder case say he was concerned that sentencing Wilkerson to prison would mean he'd end up there for an indefinite amount of time? He didn't say that specifically. During the sentencing hearing, uh, Judge Judge Butler said that he had struggled with the idea of sending Wilkerson to prison. He said Wilkerson deserved to be punished, but that, quote, we need to all find out whether he truly can or cannot be rehabilitated. Well, then what's then being done to get more inmates into treatment? The Department of Corrections has been given money in the last few years to hire more counselors. It's tough to recruit um, recruit counselors in rural towns because um, where many of the prisons are located. I spoke to Boulder District Attorney Stan Garnett, whose office tried the Boulder case. He says more offenders are getting through treatment, um, and he's frustrated Wilkerson didn't get prison time. People are being released at a much higher rate than they used to because they are receiving treatment. So I think that was an issue for some time. The legislature has recently started to fund sex offender treatment more fully, and I don't believe that that's a legitimate reason not to uh, sentence someone to custody at this time. I understand, though, not everyone agrees that the situation has actually improved. That's right. Critics say an audit last month of the Department of Corrections pointed to a continuing backlog. Laurie Rose Kepros is the director of sexual litigation for the Colorado Office of the State Public Defender. She explains it this way. Let's say an inmate is sentenced to four years to life under Colorado's Lifetime Supervision Act. At four years, they're supposed to have a parole hearing. And when that you know, day comes, the parole board is supposed to be looking at where that person falls when it comes to treatment, when it comes to, you know, being ready to return to the community as safely as possible. But Kepro says often that day comes and the offender hasn't been able to get into a treatment program. The treatment program is about two years on average, according to the audit. And we have over 200 people who have already gone past that first parole hearing and are low risk and are literally just sitting in prison waiting to commence treatment that probably is not necessary to reduce their risk. So Kepro says it's not just a fear that judges have. It's a reality that many of these offenders are going to stay longer in prison than the low end of their sentence. And Kepro says when the Lifetime Supervision Act passed in 1998, society had a more limited understanding of sex offenders and the risks they posed. I think there was an image that turned out to be false in the 1990s and 80s that there was, you know, this sort of pedophile monster, and that was going to be the kind of person we were trying to respond to. The diversity of crimes actually turns out to be much broader than that, and the diversity of people is also much broader. So lots of concerns about what some call a one-size-fits-all approach to sentencing sex offenders. At the same time, the victims and others feel strongly that some sex offenders are left off the hook. Yes, victims' advocates say sex offenders need to be dealt with harshly. They say Austin Wilkerson's sentence shows that sexual assault on college campuses and off still isn't being taken seriously. Here's Carmen Carter. She's the executive director of The Blue Bench, which helps victims of sexual assault. 
unfortunately, I think we see over and over that in those cases, judges often don't choose to hand down sentences that are are connected to the crime, especially in the last year. I mean, what we saw in Stanford, what we saw again in Boulder, that doesn't seem really out of the norm. So this case has stirred up a lot of emotions. We'll see if the petition to remove the judge ends up in the hands of lawmakers this session. And critics of the Lifetime Supervision Act will continue to urge lawmakers to change the law so that they say it's fair to the victim and to the offender. Andrea, always informative. Thanks for joining us. Sure. That was CPR's Andrew Dukakis. Up next, two men from Fort Collins have just returned from a rescue operation in the Mediterranean Sea. Thousands of refugees have died there trying to escape to Europe. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. More than 300,000 refugees have set to sea in the Mediterranean this year, and it's often a deadly trip. Pope Francis recently described the Mediterranean as a graveyard. Last month, a Fort Collins firefighter and journalists were among a crew that pulled nearly a 1,000 people to safety. The two were part of an international rescue force out of Malta. Jim Houck of the Pooter Fire Authority and Jason Pohl of the Coloradoan newspaper join me now from Fort Collins. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Jim, this was your second time volunteering in the Mediterranean with Global Disaster Intermediate, uh, rather Global Disaster Immediate Response Team, or DIRT for short. Uh, take us there and describe a rescue that stands out for you. Uh, the most memorable rescue is the one where we, uh, the raft was sinking. Uh, we got a call on the radio of the Minden and it said that uh, from a Spanish warship said that they had found a raft. And they needed assistance, and we came over. We were headed that direction. And then a couple minutes later, they came on and said that the raft was in distress. And a couple minutes later, they came on and said, uh, we have people in the water. And from my time in the Coast Guard, I mean, when you hear that, people in the water, you really, everything changes. Um, And we we got there as quick as we could to help assist. Describe who you were rescuing. We were rescuing. Uh, rescuing the refugees that come off of the coast of Libya. They come off of numerous different countries from Senegal. Um, some of them are from Libya. There are some from Syria. They're from uh, Niger. They're from Ghana. Uh, they're from all over the place. And they're men, women, children? <clears throat> yes, men, women, children of all ages. Um, it's you, you never know. One raft will be entirely adults. And then the next one you'll find that could have 20 to 25 kids on board, all, all under the age of five. Um, I know that there's, I mean, we, our youngest we had on this trip was about, uh, I believe eight months old. Hmm. And you're a father of young children. What's it like to see these kids in, in harm's way like that? Uh, you know, now that I'm a father, everything hits you a little differently. Um, it is. It's hard. You know, there was uh, a small vessel that we were <clears throat> uh, helping, and it was full of kil- uh, full of children. And there was a little boy that was looked like he was right around the same age as my son. And he, uh, I believe he was the only one that wasn't seasick on board. And he was just looking at us, smiling. And, you know, I'm thinking of my kids back home that are, you know, watching TV in a nice warm house, each have their own bedroom. You know, it's just a very different situation. That must hit you really hard there. Jim, you recruited Jason to join this trip as a journalist. Why was it important to you to have a journalist come along on this rescue mission? 
You know, the news in the U.S. was very different than what was going on over in Europe. The The news was, you know, we were very focused on our election of our next president. And some of these international stories were not, you know, being being portrayed in the news. And so when this opportunity came and I called Jason and said, hey, do you think you can come along with us? I knew that it would definitely be with his contacts and everything, he could get it out into the news in the U.S. and help people more aware of what's going on and hopefully change some attitudes of why these people are fleeing their countries and maybe fix some of the root cause of why they're, why they're fleeing. And the story is in uh, USA Today and the Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, Jason, you did go along as a journalist with DIRT, but you're also trained as an emergency medical technician. What was your role on board? Were you simply an observer alone or a participant in the rescue effort? It was really an interesting blend, I think. Um, Most of the time, I was there as a journalist. I was there to kind of document and take notes uh, throughout the entire trip. And in fact, that was a running joke uh, between me and Jim in that I always had my notebook out and I was always jotting down something, um, flipping through pages and looking back on previous day's notes. Um, But throughout that whole time, I was also part of the crew with the seven other people. We got to know each other very well. We talked about a lot of different things. And then when situations arose that required some sort of rescue or an all-hands-on-deck type situation like we encountered, um, the camera went to the side, the notebook went into the back pocket, and I kind of transitioned into that role as a rescuer. And that sort of meant um, helping people get over the railing and guiding them to the bow of the boat, uh, making sure they had no life-threatening medical issues going on, things like that. And so it was really an interesting blend of being a journalist and an observer, but then also, uh, you know, being there as a first responder. Was that tough for you to to make that that distinction of being a journalist one second and then being actually a part of the story? It was. It it wasn't as uh, hard of a line to balance as I thought it might have been, because I think at a certain point, um, your your humanity sort of kicks in and you realize Mm. that you have to you have to put that camera aside. You have to think about what the broader picture is. And of course, that story can still be told, and that story can be told through a very powerful lens with photos, videos, and of course, storytelling. Um, but I think it makes the story a lot more real. Jason, is there a person or story that stands out you stands out for you in in, in your memory? There is. There's uh, actually that same rescue that Jim was talking about oh. where um, there were people in the water and we were actively pulling people over the railing and making sure that they were doing okay. Um, there was one woman, she was an African woman in her 20s. She was wearing a striped shirt and she came over the railing and she just kept staring straight ahead. And uh, she eventually locked eyes with me and she just kept saying, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And uh, I kind of guided her to the bow of the boat and made sure that she was doing okay. got her a heat blanket and then went back to doing the rest of uh, my tasks. Um, I never got her name, uh, but for me, that woman's gratitude stands out um, more than pretty much any other incident that happened throughout the two weeks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Jason Pohl is a reporter with the Coloradoan newspaper. He was embedded in a refugee rescue operation in the Mediterranean Sea last month. Firefighter Jim Houck was a volunteer member of that rescue team. Uh, Jason, the most recent ceasefire in Aleppo, Syria, collapsed after just a day, but appears to be back in effect now. The United Nations says almost 5 million Syrians have fled their country and millions more are displaced within its borders. 
How do Syrians fit into the refugee crisis that you experienced? It's really interesting if you look at a map of what the migration routes look like in this part of the world. I think um, here in the West, we tend to think that it's just Syrians that are crossing these waters. But there's actually a number of different launch points from a number of different countries along the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, where we were off the coast of Libya, we were encountering some Syrians, certainly. I'd say maybe 5 to 10%. But overall, um, I think we were encountering a lot more people from Senegal and Sierra Leone and Niger and some of those places that Jim was mentioning earlier. Um, so in, in my experience and in our experience for that two weeks... The Syrians, I think, were uh, you know, going through their um, process further east hmm. than where we were. Over the course of two weeks, your ship, the Minden, plucked a thousand people from the water. How do rescuers find these people? Are they just out there floating around, hoping someone sees them on the horizon? That was one of the most interesting things to me as an outsider kind of coming into this as a journalist in that, you know, I always had the impression that it was getting dispatched to calls of boats in distress. And that's certainly part of it. There's there's organizing entities that make sure um, where they're able, that they're able to dispatch resources to stranded vessels or distressed vessels. But there's also other ways that rescue boats will learn about boats in distress. Um, part of that comes through um, simply having binoculars out on the on the deck and, and looking around and trying to spot things, looking at your radar screen and trying to spot things. And the other part of it is actually sort of a, a network of, we call them engine fishers. These people um, will follow boats out into international waters and ultimately harvest the engines from these boats that have refugees on them. But these people will also, these engine fishers, will also alert rescue boats like the crew of the Minden um, to some of these distressed boats and thus kind of guide us um, to these to these people in distress. So, so they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, re they'll, they'll disable the boat, but then alert you that they need rescuing? In many cases, yes. And in many cases, it's actually flipped. They'll actually alert us and then wait for us to get everybody evacuated and then take the engine. Oh. Uh, Jim, in, in Jason's story, he says there's no shortage of non-governmental organizations with a presence in the Mediterranean watching these things. But redundancies and lack of training pose problems. And, and he sums it up by saying, quote, a good heart is not enough. In your view, what's the difference between an effective and non-effective rescue effort, especially when you're talking about uh, these people going around flipping boats and taking engines? You know, the, there's a lot of NGOs operating out there, as you said. The difference, one is with our NGO, Global Dirt, is the volunteers that come, we all have training from other agencies and we've had this training, you know, from these governmental agencies, and now we can volunteer with this experience. And when you have that training, and we're used to working together as a team in these emergency situations, we're, we're far more effective, and we can under, we understand that, you know, a certain action, what the reaction will be to it. You know, um, they do all the other NGOs do good work. It's just the uh, requires a lot of people to get their work done, and sometimes it's not in the safest manner which can ultimately result in some of the refugees, you know, perishing in the Mediterranean. Uh, Jim, this is the deadliest year on record in the Mediterranean, and Pope Francis says the sea has become a graveyard, and the crossing between Libya and Italy is the most perilous. Uh, one person is killed for every 47 who survive. You've done this a few times. What have you witnessed? Have you seen that, that horror? 
I have, uh, you know, we've had to recover deceased persons from the water in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, that's always the hard part. You know, we had, uh, we had two gentlemen that were deceased and they were sharing one life jacket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people think that just because you have a life jacket on, you're immediately, you're safe in the water and you're not. I mean, this is, you know, Mediterranean's a large body of, of large body of water and, uh, you know, when you see these people that are deceased and we recover them and uh, bring them to shore for proper burial, it's a, you know, it does hit home because you know that they were, they were in distress and it, uh, you just weren't there to help. And that's, that's really why we go out there so that that doesn't happen. We just, we just don't want to see the people die in the water. Jason, are these refugees expecting to make it all the way to Europe or is the plan to get picked up in the sea? I think it's sort of mixed in in my experience, and Jim can also probably chime in on this a little bit too, but there's certainly a number of folks who do board these really precarious rubber rafts and overcrowded wooden boats and think that they're going to make it across the Mediterranean and get to Italy. And what will often happen is smugglers, the people who are running these operations, they will point to some lights offshore and they'll say, that's Italy, that's the European mainland. And many of these refugees have never seen open water like this before. Obviously, they don't know how to swim in many cases. But they believe that that is, in fact, the Italian coast. And they board these vessels and they start going. But those lights off the coast, that's not the European mainland. Those are often oil rigs. Those Mm are um, drilling operations offshore. Um, So then they get out there and the Mediterranean is very choppy and it can get very rough. And that's where people run into trouble. Jim, what are your thoughts? I agree. It's, uh, you know, talking to the different refugees from the different rafts from my, both my trips that we've rescued, they, uh, some of them do, some of them have the impression that they're going to go off. They're going to reach 12 miles, which is international waters. There'll be an NGO there. They'll pick them up and go. But a lot of them will tell you that they don't care, um, that they would rather die in the water than continue to live the life they were living, that that slight chance to get to Europe and have a better life is worth it, is worth the risk and worth the risk, not just for them, but worth, worth the risk for their family and their children. Uh, to, to the, to the both of you, what do you hope your reporting and, and your work there, uh, bring home to Fort Collins and, and to the people of Colorado about the crisis in the Mediterranean? I think the thing that I'm most hopeful about when it comes to this reporting and this project is that people go beyond the typical headlines that we often associate with the crisis over there. Um, So often we see the headlines of, you know, 4,600 killed or most deadly year ever. And that's certainly a news story. But I think going beyond that headline and actually telling the story of some of the people who are fleeing their home countries, some of the people that are trying to get to better life, the rescuers who are trying to um, stay out of the politics of everything and really just keep people safe, um, thinking more uh, more broadly about this issue than the sound bites we often hear. I think that's the biggest thing that I hope people walk away with. Jim, I'll have to agree. With, I'll have to agree with Jason. You know, they're these people are they're no different than us. You know, they want they want a safe place to raise their children. They want their children to have three meals a day, to be educated and grow up to have opportunities. You know, which is no different than what we really want for our families. Um, we I think sometimes through the news and the media and, you know, different things we read on social media that may be right or wrong, but it's, the impression is not what 
um, is trying to be portrayed at times that they really are. They're generally, they're just people like us. Thanks so much to the both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Firefighter Jim Houck of the Poudre Fire Authority and journalist Jason Pohl of the Coloradoans spent two weeks last month rescuing refugees from the Mediterranean Sea off Malta. You can find a link to Jason's reporting from the trip at cprnews.org. Up next, a Boulder library has been tapped to hold some very important federal documents, like a book made of sheepskin. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You probably don't think of the U.S. government as a publisher, but it generates a massive number of documents, and some of them are pretty cool. Back in the 1800s, congressional reports were covered in sheepskin. There's an 1891 account of a Native American ghost dance that some deemed a threat. And those are just two examples of government uh, documents housed in Boulder at CU's Norlin Library. It's just been deemed the nation's first government document preservation steward. Kate Tallman is the acting head. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Uh, Other examples from the collection, uh, documents related to the Sand Creek Massacre and Mm -hmm. more recently the 9-11 Commission hearings. But let's start with this old volume covered in sheepskin. What what is this? So this is uh, the 14th annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology to the Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. Now, that doesn't tell you very much. (laughs) That sounds awfully boring, right? But we open this volume up and we discover... That um, the United States Congress had sent this, you know, massive group of ethnographers out to the western and southern states to speak with Native Americans. And they reported back to Congress on the ghost dance, which was a religious movement that was making its way through the country at the time. So I have opened to a beautiful drawing done by a gentleman named Bianchi. He had a vision during one of these ghost dances, and he drew out kind of the map of where his vision took him. So this is just one. One beautiful example of a drawing we would find in here. And by the way, this is from 1892. So when you see some of the colors and how they pop out on They're these vibrant. pages, yeah. you can see really how valuable these documents are. And, and one passage from this report tells how the Paiute tribe danced for four nights. Then it describes what happened on the morning of the fifth day. It says a general shaking and waving of blankets as among the prairie tribes, after which all go down and bathe in the nearest stream. The shaking of the blankets dispels all evil influences and drives sickness and disease away from the dancers. And again, these drawings are all mm-hmm. uh, vivid in this book. Yes, yes. Uh, one example of the ghost dance that has been illustrated is a, a painting on a buckskin. This was done by a gentleman named Yellow Nose, and he was a Ute captive among the Cheyenne in 1891. And he actually sketched out on buckskin in color um, a lot of these people. He was kind of depicting the ghost dance as it was happening. And you can see the handkerchiefs waving, and you can see women and men with babies and other people going into a trance like state. It's and, very interesting. And all this was in this book, and there were volumes of these books that have very boring titles, but yes. <laughs> held within them something very interesting. They, it, it's, it always blows me away. We have uh, one of the sets that we've um, signed on to preserve is called the U.S. Congressional Serial Set. And this is a sequential submission of reports from different federal agencies over the years. We go from volume one to volume 15,900. That's about where we're at now. And 
all of these have incredibly boring titles that don't really tell you what's in them. But when you open them up, you see some really interesting stuff. And that's kind of where I come in as the librarian to guide my users to that collection. And you can see some of these illustrations at cprnews.org. Kate, one of your colleagues used uh, the report we've been talking about as a presentation for students. Uh, It elicited kind of an unusual response from one of the students. Tell us about that. Yes. So my colleague, Leanne Walther, works very closely with our special collections department. And we bring students in from high school, middle school, all the way to upper um, undergraduate. This was a upward bound program. This is first generation students contemplating going to the university. Hmm. So we had a group of Native American students and she pulled materials for every one of them so they could see what government documents might say about their tribes. And this particular student, she opened to this volume and she talked about the ghost dance and he became very emotional and he pulled out his phone and he went to YouTube and he pulled up a video of his grandfather doing the ghost dance in the 19-teens to the 1920s. It was a huge impact. It had a huge impact on him and on Leanne. And it's one of our favorite stories to tell from the Government Information Library. So... This book has an impact on students. It has impact on you, it seems. Uh, and this collection is part of the the library, and, and you've agreed to preserve this, and it's part of this new designation. What exactly has the university library agreed to as the nation's yeah. first document preservation steward? Yes. So what we have agreed to is to preserve three big collections of legislative history documents. We knew that we had a strong collection. They were in good condition, and they were relatively complete. So we went to the government publishing office and offered up um, this agreement that we would preserve these. Um, This is only a small portion of our collection. We have over 2.2, probably more, million documents. Um, This is about 120,000 documents. This is uh, the congressional record, which is a daily kind of summary of what goes on on the congressional floor. This is the congressional serial set, which I talked about, which has House and Senate reports. And then one of our most useful documents are congressional hearings. These are hearings and testimonies in front of Congress that we introduce to students and patrons all the time. So it's these three big collections that we are agreeing to preserve, and not only just to hold on to them, but to provide or uh, preservation treatment over time as they come in and out of the library. We want to make sure that they hold up and that they're safe when they go back to our off-site storage facility. So you're preserving these these books in this collection. Um, are you also uploading them online? Is there a digital collection that you're doing? There are a lot of digital collections of these materials. And that's one of the reasons why we agreed to do this, because we can provide free access to a lot of these. And we also subcri- subscribe to databases that provide access to all these documents as well. So we figured we can preserve the print because the digital is available. Kate Tallman is the acting head of the nation's first government document preservation steward at CU's Norlin Library, preserving federal documents and and collections. Um, Do you get huge regular delivery like dumps from the government, like (laughs) as a dump truck pull in? (laughs) Um, I'm sure my colleague Sheila would think of it as a dump truck. But yes, we do have deliveries every day um, that bring a wide variety of publications. And um, I would like to note an, an interesting fact is that the U.S. Congress is the most prolific publisher in the world. They publish more than anybody else. And as a regional depository library for government documents in the state of Colorado, we receive all of that. And we agree to hold on to it in perpetuity. So yes, we do have kind of a a pretty massive collection of documents. Most of them are off-site at this point, but yeah. 
And then are there other preservation libraries around the country and do they have different collections then? Yes. So we are, uh, we just found out that the University of Kentucky signed the second preservation steward agreement uh, just a few days ago. And they're agreeing to hold on to WPA documents. They had a very strong collection of these New Deal documents. Um, So they've agreed to preserve those. And can people just walk in and start pulling out these documents and no. looking at them? No. <laughs> Hands off. <laughs> For the most, anybody can walk into our library. Uh-huh. We serve everybody. It's part of our mandate. We are legally obliged to serve the public. However, with these preservation documents specifically, those are living off-site in a safe facility. We can recall them for the patrons, and they can use them in our special collections and archives reading room. Or we are always happy to just pass along the digital file or a free copy of the record. We talked about history from over a century ago, but these documents also cover what's going on currently in government as well, like right now. Yes, absolutely. What is some of that that you're, you're, you're preserving? So some of that, we're getting a lot of these hearings that we hear about on the news every day. So I love listening to CPR because I hear mention of government documents all morning long. And we kind of have a fun time in the office guessing where we can go find the things that are mentioned in the news. So almost any historical or current event is covered. And if it bubbles up to that congressional level where they're discussing it on the floor, we get documents related to that. And we mentioned the 9-11 Commission documents. Is it specialty to hold pieces of history like that where you hear about it and people know about it, but you're actually holding these documents? Absolutely. Even knowing that there are multiple copies, it is very fascinating. And to hold these and to just see um, we're preserving the print record of our democracy, that's important to us. That's the cornerstone of what we do as government documents librarians, is we provide access to this. So it's a noble cause. And we're all very excited to be in this profession. And holding any of these documents in our hands is pretty special. And uh, you brought another document that had a bit of a big effect on some Louisville Middle School students who were looking at Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, and its effect on the meatpacking industry. How did your uh, collection impact that? Well, they came to the library. They said, we want to see what kind of government documents were written about this topic of uh, workers' rights. And my colleagues ran out and grabbed them a bunch of reports, and they discovered a letter from Theodore Roosevelt. He was transmitting a report back to Congress on an investigation that he ordered into the Chicago stockyard. And it is a very fascinating read because you're you're reading the accounts of these two gentlemen yeah. who went to the stockyard, saw the conditions, wrote it up, and sent it back to Theodore Roosevelt, and it caused an uproar. The conditions were just awful. So, and, and you can see a copy of Roosevelt's letter at cprnews.org. Uh, I, I wonder, Kate, what is your favorite document in the whole collection? <laughs> That's a tough one. So uh, we have a really interesting collection of USGS geological surveys. Late 1800s, Congress said, we want to get to know the Western states a little better. Mm -hmm. So they paid these big groups of guys to come out here, um, draw flora and fauna, take measurements, try to figure out where to put the railroad. Um, So the Hayden Survey is one example. That's from 1871. Mm -hmm. They explored the Yellowstone area. They also came down to Colorado. And that is probably one of my favorites. It has very vibrant paintings, beautiful pictures, and really amazing descriptive content. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Kate Tallman is the acting head of the Government Document Depository at CU Boulder's Norland Library. We've posted photos of a few of the documents at cprnews.org. Up next, a winter storm is headed for the mountains. We'll check in with a ski forecaster on where to hit the slopes. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ski season got off to a slow start in Colorado, but a series of storms is changing things, and pretty quickly. Meteorologist Joel Gratz is back with us. He founded the website Open Snow, and he was on with my colleague Ryan Warner a few weeks ago. Welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Love talking about snow. So uh, let's cut to the chase. What areas of the state will have the best chance for snow this weekend? Well, this is a pretty unique storm because all areas of the state will have a good chance for a lot of snow. The mountains along I-70 north of the Steamboat, uh, Central Mountains, Aspen, Monarch, Crested Butte, and the Southern Mountains, Wolf Creek, Silverton, Telluride, Purgatory. Everybody is going to get snow. Uh, The storm will start Thursday night, and the heaviest snow will probably fall Friday night into Saturday morning. So Saturday morning looks like a great ski day almost everywhere. And for people that didn't hear our first uh, interview or don't know your site, Open Snow is dedicated to helping skiers and snowboarders find the best powder each day, be it first chair or last. So this really is your specialty. Do you have any honorable mentions for this weekend? Maybe places that aren't going to get the best snow, but you may want to visit and check it out. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple thoughts are that this pattern sets up really well for Wolf Creek in the southwestern part of the state. Uh, my guess is that they could get over 30 inches of snow uh, from this storm, and they are also 100% open. Um, and there's only one other ski area in the state that I show 100% open, which is Ski Cooper, which is all-natural snow uh, near Leadville. Um, so those two areas are um, could get great snow and have a lot of terrain, and that's just one more thing to consider in the early season is even though we're getting great snow, not every ski area is 100% open. The average across the state is maybe about 50% open. So before going to ski, make sure to check the snow report. We have that on Open Snow or uh, on the resort's websites to see how much terrain is available. But it's going to be really cold, right? You may get turned off from skiing on Saturday just because of those wind chills. Well, it's going to be chilly, um, but it's also going to, uh, there's going to be great powder. So oftentimes the two are, are connected. So if you really are into good powder skiing, uh, Saturday morning is a great time. And yes, it will be chilly. It will be breezy. Temperature is probably in the single digits to teens. Um, but hey, that's the price to pay for powder. Sunday will be colder um, and also drier but sunnier. Uh, so it's kind of a pick your poison type of thing. But if you're really jonesing for powder, uh, sometimes you just have to put up with the cold a little bit. Now, this has been a trend in Colorado for the past few years to get some significant snow in mid-December. Have the mountains recovered from the dry November this year? Yeah, actually, unbelievably, about three to four weeks ago in uh, in the middle of November, the snowpack was at 5 to 10 percent of average. And now looking at the map across the state, we are generally between about 75 percent to 100 percent of average. And after this storm, most of the state's mountains should be right around average snowpack or slightly above So the last three to four weeks has taken us from zero to hero, basically. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Joel Gratz was once called Snowstradamus in Outside Magazine. He founded Open Snow, a ski forecasting website. Check that out. And, of course, all the ski forecasts at CPRnews.org. The Colorado Symphony earned some great reviews this year for a disc of music by Aaron Copland, 
the composer who practically defined the sound of the West. This is Buckaroo Holiday from Copland's ballet, Rodeo. Each December, we invite some of our friends from CPR Classical and CPR's Open Air to share some of this year's most memorable Colorado releases. Joining us to talk about some notable classical albums, Jeff Zumfeldy. He's the music director for CPR Classical. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, plenty of orchestras have recorded Aaron Copland's music uh, before the Colorado Symphony got around to it. What makes another album of music from Rodeo and Billy the Kid uh, worthwhile? Well, to start with just the quality of the performance. Uh If you want to hear just how good the Colorado Symphony is, check out this disc because they really sound fantastic. I mean, this is a release that's getting reviews from international publications and it really shows off how great the orchestra sounds. And these are recordings of Copland's full ballet scores. Why is that important? Well, you know, Andrew Litton, in addition to having been director for the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Also, he's now the music director for the New York City City Ballet. And uh, he really brings the dance element to it. It's kind of refreshing to remember that these were originally ballet scores. So there's a story that goes along with these pieces. And most people, you know, you don't have that in your mind that there's a story going on here. It's more than just the music of the West here. With dancers and and things like that? Yep. With dancers, cowboys, (laughs) bar scenes. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of bar scenes, I want to listen to a moment you you don't usually hear when an orchestra plays Copeland's music. This is Ranch House Party from Rodeo. Sounds like you're in a bar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's Andrew Litton playing that honky-tonk piano. Uh, and, you know, that's a moment that usually that gets cut for the orchestral suite because how many orchestras have a honky-tonk piano just sitting backstage? But Colorado Symphony Orchestra has one? Well, this is, this is Andrew Litton wanting to, I think, bring, a, bring that ballet sensibility to it that he has um, and play the full score that you don't hear. It's a, it's a unique twist, so it gives you something new on music that you may already be familiar with. Now, Andrew Linton's work shows up a few times on your list this year. He conducted the performances on an album of music by Roy Harris, a composer who once taught composition here in Colorado. What stands out about the album? Uh, you know, Roy Harris was, um, he was really a big influence on Copeland. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about Copeland and you wonder how a, how a kid from Brooklyn ended up defining the sound of the West. Well, he borrowed some of that from Roy Harris, who was born and raised in Oklahoma. And, you know, he taught here in Colorado. He taught down at Colorado College in the Springs. And uh, he, he's he got a lot of those same harmonic sounds that Copeland has, but his uh, his melodies are often uh, less less familiar, a lot thornier, a lot spikier. Is it is it similar in terms of the, the Western style that Copeland has? Yeah, it's got that sort of big, open harmonic feel that that really defines those Copeland scores that people think about as as being so American. And this is from Roy Harris's violin concerto, uh, Andrew Linton's conducting, and the violinist is who now? Tamson Whaley Cohen. I want to see if we can hear the difference here between Copeland and Harris.
It is similar, but you do hear those differences, that, that Western openness, and it's quite prominent. Yeah, it is. It is. It's great. So is there another aspect to this disc? Well, you know, this violin concerto is kind of a lost piece. It was written by Harris in the 1940s, but there were some problems with the score when it was about to be premiered, and it never was premiered, not in his lifetime. He died in 1979, and it wasn't until the mid-80s when people got the score out of the drawer and fixed the problems with the score that that had caused it to miss its premiere, and it finally was performed in the 1980s, and this is only the second recording that's ever been made of the piece. Another one of your favorite discs was a soundtrack for a film called The Colorado. This was a documentary about the Colorado River. What makes that CD special? Well, this CD is sort of a who's who of uh, of contemporary musicians right now. So you've got um, John Luther Adams, a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, contributing to the disc. Uh, one of the chief performers on the disc is Roomful of Teeth, a Grammy winning vocal ensemble yeah. who's shown up here in Colorado a number of times. Uh, you have pieces written by Shara Nova, whom people might know as Shara Warden from the band My Brightest Diamond, um, and also playing on the on the recording and writing pieces for it, uh, Glenn Kochi, who's in the band Wilco. Jeff, one of the other discs that made news this year came from a group called the Capital Quartet. There's a piece on their album called The Mechanics, and it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Tell us a little more about the person who wrote this. Uh, This is by Carter Pan. He's a composer up at CU in Boulder. And uh, it's it's really a huge honor just to be one of the nominated pieces for the Pulitzer. The Pulitzers are funny because you don't they don't nominate people ahead of time ah. when they announce the awards they also say here here are two other pieces that we thought were really great too and so his piece was one of those to be recognized so here's the uh, capital quartet playing carter pans the mechanics <laughs> Jeff, we talked about Carter Pan, the composer from CU. The uh, in-house string quartet at CU, the Takach Quartet, also made some of your favorite music this year, right? Well, they're they're one of our local superstars, really. <laughs> I mean, they're internationally famous, and they they were nominated last year for a disc of music that they recorded of Shostakovich. And this year, they teamed up once again with Mark Andre Hamelin to do a disc of uh, WC String Quartets and also the Cesar Franck uh, Piano Quintet. Let's hear a bit more from the Takas Quartet. So uh, that is some of your favorite music and CPR Classical's favorite music. Yes. Yep. And this can be all found online? That's right. Uh, we've got an article on, on cprclassical.org outlining these and a number of other releases that we loved this year. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jeff Zumfeldy is music director for CPR Classical. Find more CPR Classical's favorite discs of 2016 at cprclassical.org. Our look at some of the year's best Colorado music continues on Monday when we look at Open Air's favorite releases. 
Ryan Warner joins us back tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great day.